<clears throat> okay, well, today we are continuing in our Life of David series. Uh, actually, for June here, um, we're going to be finishing up our series. We've actually gone through almost 40 chapters of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so we're rounding the corner, and then as we go into July and as we go into August, um, we'll be starting our summer series. So we've been tracking the life of David in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and we are also coming to the end of David's earthly life. Now, David's life was marked by many highs and many lows. He lived for 70 years. And as we look at these three chapters today, chapters 20 through 22, David is approximately 60 years old. And so that gives us a bit of a framework to understand the events that are going on and how the book concludes. But our starting point is going to be from Psalm 18. And uh, we're going to look specifically at the instruction that David gave prior to writing this psalm. Um, the reason why we're going to Psalm 18, because in chapter 22, it quotes the entire psalm. Uh, psalm 18 is David's fourth longest psalm, and he quotes the entire thing in, in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. So it's a very important psalm, and there's a specific reason uh, that David did that. So uh, hopefully you have your Bibles with you. Um, if you turn to Psalm 18, you will see at the beginning um, of this passage of Scripture <clears throat> what David tells the music director. He says, for the music director of David, the servant of the Lord. So he's identifying himself as the author. He says, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So the key part there is that this is a song that David sang when God delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now this intro gives us a key time stamp in that it was written by David when he was around 30 years old, after Saul had died in battle and then David succeeded his throne. So David has become king and so this psalm now is given to us at the time of David's age which was around 30. Now, this season in David's life uh, was golden for him. It was his golden years. Um, he had unbroken victories in the battlefield. He was supernaturally escaping from Saul over and over again, as we've talked through. He took out Goliath in that very, very famous battle. And he was slaying demons with harps that would come over Saul. So as I was saying, in Psalm 18, we have this uh, introduction in which tells us when David wrote it, when he was around 30 years old, and it represented really the golden years of David's life. All the, the victories that he had on the battlefield, he took out Goliath, and of course when he played the harp, he was able to drive away the evil spirits um, that were afflicting Saul. So when he, he wrote this psalm, um, he was inspired by that incredible season of outpouring upon his life. And it's really uh, considered a work of genius. Um, this poetry is grand. It's an exalting hymn of gratitude for God and about God and to God. And so I was going to show you some verses and call out some verses here, but this will make you even better Bible students this morning. Um, turn with me to chapter 22. <clears throat> and there's some verses there that I will quote in terms of what David is saying. So he said there that the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, 
my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold and my refuge. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Goes on to say, you are my lamp. The Lord illumines my darkness. Now remember, David wrote this at the age of 30. And these testimonies that he's writing refer to all the things that he lived through uh, in the years leading up to it. So these are very, very real to him on how God delivered him and illuminated his darkness. I in particular love verse 31 where he says, the Lord, his way is perfect. You mean God that your way is perfect when Saul is chasing me all over the country trying to kill me? You mean that your way is perfect when I have to go through all these trials and all these difficulties? You anointed me when I was 16 to be king and I have to wait 15 years. Your way is perfect, Lord. Absolutely, your way is perfect. And in verse 36, commentators absolutely love this verse. In the ESV, in the King James, it says that your gentleness made me great. And I think that there's such a revelation that David had of the mercy of God and the gentleness of God. We tend to think that God can be harsh, he can be strong, he can be severe. But David's revelation was that God was so gentle with him. And he understood that it was the gentleness of the Lord that made him great. He talks about how God enlarged his steps, prevented his feet from falling, and it all results in this massive effusion of praise. It says, I will sing praise to your name. Okay, so here's the question. That psalm was written when he was 30 years old. Now we are in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, and David is 65 years old. How could he use this psalm again when it was originally written for a much different time in David's life? His context now at the age of 65 could not be more different. Arguably, the last 20 years have been nothing but regret for David because of all the difficulties that were triggered by his adultery with Bathsheba. Remember that Nathan prophesied to him that because of your indiscretion and because of your sin, the sword will not depart from your household and evil will come with, from within your own home. And that's exactly what we see happened. That word came to pass in living color. We can talk about Amnon, who was David's first son. And we read and talked about that horrifying scene in which he rapes his own sister. This is unthinkable. But here it was happening right in the royal household. And then Tamar, who was the sister that was raped, had her brother, Absalom, who took up her offense. And after two years waiting for King David to do something, finally took matters into his own hand and then murdered his own brother. So then he has to flee the country. He is now a fugitive. So he goes to his grandfather's place, which was in a place called Geshur. And he was there for three years outside of the country so that he could elude the hands and the arms of justice. Finally, Joab, David's general, saw how sad he was that Absalom was gone. So Joab goes and secures his return. And then Absalom comes back to Jerusalem. But then David makes him wait two more years. And so in those two years, the seeds of bitterness have grown so deep that even when Absalom finally gets to see his dad, the game is over. In total, he waited seven years for his dad to do something. But basically, Absalom said, my dad is a very poor leader. I need to take his place. 
And indeed, that's what he did. His own son then mounted attack against his dad to take over his throne. Again, as we've read, we know that that was thwarted. We know that it didn't work out. But the trial and the difficulty and the heartache that David had to go through because of his own sons is hard to imagine. Well, you compound all of that. It had a sad ending in that Joab killed Absalom. So now David is bereft of both his sons, his oldest son and his second son. And in the middle of this, as David is coming back after Absalom has been killed, there is another revolt. I mean, we are talking difficulty upon difficulty and sorrow upon sorrow. And so in chapter 20, the scripture describes for us a revolt that was led by a person named Sheba. And it says there in verse 1, it happened that there was a worthless fellow. His name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent. So what happened is that when David came back to Jerusalem, the tribes of Judah uh, invited him back. And they say, Hey, David, you're of our tribe. You're our relatives. You're of our flesh. Of course, we see you as our king. But the Israelites were late to the game and they got jealous. And so they began to create the squabbling between Israel and Judah. And so Israel makes a counterclaim and says, listen, we're 10 tribes. You guys are just two tribes. Of course, David should be our king as well. Anyways, this quarreling breaks out and Sheba takes advantage of this division that's going on. So he tells everyone in Israel to scatter. Now there's the potential of a civil war. And so David moves and acts to quell this rebellion. So he tells Amasa to go and get Sheba. Who is Amasa? Well, Amasa is the new general. He was the general that was appointed by Absalom. And when David came back into Jerusalem, he basically fired Joab. And then he replaced Joab with Amasa. So he tells Amasa to go find um, Sheba. But as they're going to do that, Joab follows after Amasa and ends up knifing him to death. Literally takes the sword and thrusts it into his abdomen. The Bible says that his intestines fell out and he died there right on the road. And if that wasn't bad enough, this was actually a nephew on nephew killing. Joab and Amasa were nephews. But Joab was so powerful hungry and not wanting to lose his position that he killed his nephew. Long story short, Joab takes over Amasa's place, they find Sheba, and then they ultimately kill him, and then the revolt is over. Finally, the kingdom now is consolidated back to King David. But again, you have to put yourself in David's shoes and think about just the stress and the anxiety of all these things that are continually going on. Well, in between all the stuff that was going on, there was yet another crisis. And this is given to us in chapter 21. There was a national famine that came on the country. So as if all this political intrigue and all this stuff that was going on behind the scenes wasn't enough for David, there was a national crisis in that there was a famine for three years. So the economy is tanking, the agrarian sector is tanking, people don't have food, it's a crisis. So David seeks the Lord, and it says in chapter 21, verse 1, that God told him the drought and the famine was due to King Saul's baseless murder of the Gibeonites. 
Okay, who are the Gibeonites? I know I'm throwing a lot of names and a lot of uh, labels at you. The Gibeonites <clears throat> were a Canaanite tribe, and they originally made a treaty with Joshua 400 years earlier when Joshua came into the land. Unlike the other Canaanites that were trying to fight uh, the Jewish people, the Gibeonites were afraid, and so they decided to surrender and to make a peace treaty. So they've had this peace treaty in which Israel would not attack them, but Saul, unfortunately, did not hold to that treaty and slaughtered them. And so as a result of that, God tells David, there's a famine in the land because that treaty was broken. So David has to make amends for this national sin. We call it organizational redress. It'd be like Canada making redress to the First Nations. Uh, a few years back, the city of New West made redress to Asians in the way they treated the original laborers that came and lived in downtown New Westminster. It'd be like the Catholic Church making redress for the abuse of the priests. So God was holding Israel accountable for not holding to their word of peace. And the payment, the redress, was that seven of Saul's grandsons would be turned over to the Gibeonites and then they would be hung. So that's exactly what happened. And after the seven grandsons of Saul uh, were hung, David gathered the bones of Saul and Jonathan, father, son, along with the grandsons, and he buried them all together in Saul's father's grave, who was called Kish. So you put this together and you start getting the big picture of what's been happening with David's life. You realize it certainly has been sorrowful and difficult. But then as we start coming to the end of David's life, there's a bit of respite. God shows his hand that he is still very much with David. And so David's approximately 60 years old. And what we find out in the back after chapter 21 is that God is going to give him some victory over the Philistines. Now, not just any Philistines, but the giants. And these four giants came from the same city that Goliath came from. And... Um, the, the names of the four giants were Ishbi, Benab, Saph, Goliath, Jr. Actually, the scripture describes him as the brother of Goliath. And then a, a giant that had six fingers on both hands and both feet. He was a 24-digited giant. Well, David's men killed them all. And uh, they said, you're getting too old. We forbid you from going out into the battles because if you get killed, the lamp of Israel will be extinguished. So I think it could not have been lost on David, just the bookends of this victory. At 16, when he was catapulted to national fame, it was because he defeated Goliath. Now, almost 40 years later, God is allowing him to defeat the giants from Gath once again. So the sweet victories of the early years was being replayed when David was still that young lad. So here's the question that we come to. What defines us? The good years of my early life or the regretful, regretful years of my latter life? Will it be the golden years or will it be the troubled years? And these are things that we work through all the time. Our self-definition, how do we see ourselves? What's the best way that we can emotionally gather? Is it based on the good things? Is it based on the bad things? Do the good things outweigh the good things? Do the bad things outweigh the bad things? Good things. 
And so this is a really, really big question. What will define us? Well, the answer is given to us in the gospel. We are not defined by our failures, but by what we are forgiven. We're not defined by our failures, but by what we're forgiven. Of course, we have failures. That's part of our story. We don't bury it. We don't hide it. We don't diminish it or skirt it. It's part of who we are. But what truly defines us is God's forgiveness of our mistakes and sins. It's his story that interacts with our story and takes out the bitterness and hardness of life that we've created through our sin. The gospel triumphs not only legally, as in we're not guilty anymore, it also triumphs emotionally. Now, Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He quoted this verse from Isaiah when he was in the synagogue in his hometown. That was his moment of reveal. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So there are three really important points there in verse 18. We are imprisoned. As we walk through life, we increasingly can feel like we're captive to something, to shame, to guilt, to regret. And we feel blinded by our own desires, our lust, our greed. How many times have we looked back and hindsight is always 20-20 and we see the faults that were in us that led to a big mistake that we made. We were blinded to really what was in front of us because we were so motivated to do what was in our own desires and our own flesh. And verse 18 also says that we have become oppressed, oppressed by the consequences of our action. Sons killing sons, sons trying to overtake dad, sons dying, daughters raped, concubines being violated. Reputation vilified in the court of public opinion and humiliation is all around. It's enough for man to say, I just want to die. The emotional toll is worse than that sin itself because of the lingering and persistent consequence over 20 years. Never seems to go away. It's always chasing me. But then the gospel comes to stun us. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just a proper legal action that took your crimes off the books. The cross also has a distinctly personal agenda, and it's to help you recover emotionally fully. You can stand before the Lord with a clean conscience and fellowship and commune with God, even as and even while the consequences of your sin are, st sin are still being played out. You may be in the eye of a storm, and it might be a monster storm, but you are in the palm of his hand. You are not abandoned to the storm. God is still with you, and we can give ourselves to him. This is the incomparable gospel. Many of us get the legally pardoned part, but we don't enter into the inner heart part. We can't go there. We won't go there. I was an addict. I was an abuser. 
I cheated on my spouse. I stole money. I had an abortion. On and on it goes. The list of our wretchedness is endless. But it is who we are. We continue to live in shame and guilt and safe self-hatred. I think one of the epidemics that we are seeing in full bloom is this epidemic of self-hatred. There is so much of it going on. There is so much sin that needs to be forgiven. There is so much freedom that God wants to pour out. On Wednesday nights, I've been preaching on revival and how God wants to come to the house. God wants to visit us. Why? So that he can heal us, so that the gospel can have an effect upon us, so that we can be made whole. Is this not the hope that we get to share with the world? We should be fired up over this. On top of it, as we try to fend off the shame and the guilt, there's the accuser of the brethren, and the devil is constantly trying to reinforce and magnify our sins. But beloved, the redemption of Calvary is total. It transforms us inside and out. God sets us free in the court of law and in the inner chambers of our heart. God sets us free, not only as a judge, but also as a shepherd. God restored to David the joy of his salvation. Benjamin Franklin once noted, many princes sin with David, but few repent with him. What an observation. Many people sin with David, but few repent with him. A deep cleansing spirit of repentance brought David out of jail. He could see he wasn't oppressed and he was liberated. He was free to sing praises to God again. In the good times and the bad times, my God is the same. He is good. In Job chapter 1, the scripture says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was the test that Job's wife failed, that she could not praise him in any season. Only when God is good, only when God is blessing me, only when God answers my prayers will I praise God. But Job said, wait a minute. Your view of the gospel is very narrow and it's deficient. Whether it's good or it's bad, we have to bless the name of the Lord. And that's exactly the heart attitude that David adopted. Yes, the first 30 years of his life were grand and great and glorious. But even though the back half of his life was so difficult, he still was going to praise the Lord. And he chose Psalm 18 to make that statement at the end of his life. That emotional freedom is worth its weight in gold. That emotional freedom is the favor of the Lord. This is what Jesus was fired up about. This is why he was saying the anointing is on me so I can declare this to the nations. You can be emotionally free. Which brings us to two verses in Acts 13. This was the summary statement of David. They're very famous, but now we have a much broader understanding and context in the weight of what God was saying. In Acts 13, 22, he said that I've raised up David to be the king. And concerning him, God testified, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. 
And then in verse 36, also well known, but maybe not as quoted, it said that David served God's purpose in his own generation. What? How did David serve God's purpose? How did David serve God's purpose when he committed adultery? How did David serve God's purposes when he murdered Uriah? How did David serve God's purposes when he was a father that was absent? And yet this is what God said. This was God's summary statement about David, even in light of all his mistakes. God didn't say he was the king that blew it. God did not say that he was the king that was a really, really bad parent. God did not say, and we're going to read about this in the last chapter, that he was not the king that tried to quantify his glory by taking a census of the nation. And by the way, 70,000 people got killed because of that mistake. Is God's forgiveness that big? Is it that deep? Is its restoration that thorough? Absolutely. Nothing can overcome or surpass the cross. And so this is what God said about him. He was a man after my heart and he served my purposes. In other words, God's forgiveness is what defines us, not our failures. Now, it doesn't mean that our failures are gone. It just means it's subordinated to his forgiveness. This is an amazing thing. Did you know that David's adultery and murder of Uriah is not written about in the book of Chronicles. Now we have two companion books. We've got First and Second Samuel, got First and Second Chronicles. They both talk about David's life. In the book of Chronicles, David's adultery and murder of Uriah is not recorded. If you did not read Second Samuel and you only read Chronicles, you'd have no idea that David committed these grievous sins. It's not there. What is God saying through that? It's a powerful picture of Calvary. Oh, the sin is there for everyone to see in 2 Samuel, but the emotional weight is gone. You don't see it in Chronicles. The entire incident is not even written down. Now, like David, because there are two sets of books in our life, the book of Samuel and the book of Chronicles, because of these two books in our life as well, we get to sing and we can sing Psalm 18. One book records our guilt, but the other records our freedom. God's forgiveness controls the narrative. And never forget that, dear one. God's forgiveness controls your narrative. Don't let the enemy, don't let any other voices, and don't let yourself Control the narrative. You let God's forgiveness control the storyline of your life. One other thing, and I'll close. Did you know that Solomon should have never been king? Many of these sons, they were vying for the throne. Amnon should have got it. Absalom tried to get it. Later on, we've, we read another one of David's sons called Adonijah also got it. But David appointed Solomon. But think about this. Solomon should not have even been born. He should have not even been there. If David never committed adultery with Bathsheba, there would be no Solomon. And yet God chose Solomon? Is that not a picture of redemption? The irony of it could not have been lost on David. But it wasn't irony 
It was the power of the gospel at work. Through the gospel, we are made new. So we end with this little scripture from chapter 22, again, which is a quotation from Psalm 18. David says that God has brought me out into an open place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David was emotionally free. And this is what God is offering to you and to me. If we have the heart of David, despite our mistakes, to return to God with all our heart, the gospel will set you free. And no money on earth can ever buy that. Do you want that? He can bring you to that open place. Father, we look to you right now. We thank you for the promise of Calvary. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for your love, God, that wants to completely liberate us. You want to set the captives free. You want to lift the oppression. You want to take away the blindness. Holy Spirit, have your way right now. If God has touched your heart in some area where you've kept yourself in the doghouse, even though God has forgiven you and released you, then come into agreement with the Lord. It's not meant to make trite God's forgiveness, but God comes to release us from the heaviness. He comes to make us emotionally free so that we can be filled with great joy. So Jesus, we thank you that at the end of David's life, as we're looking at these final chapters, we see how David magnified the gospel, modeled the gospel, walked in the gospel, and received your goodness. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I love what Pastor Rich said is that we are not defined by our failures, but defined by what we are forgiven of. And that's the power of the gospel, that the gospel doesn't look at what you've done. It looks at what Jesus has done. And what Jesus has done on the cross is he has extended his kindness and his grace towards you. And when he does that, and when we receive that, no longer what we, who, what, what we do, whether it's our successes or failures, they don't become the focus of who we are anymore. What becomes the focus is Jesus Christ on the cross. That it is his, his sacrifice that he's made that has restored and, and reconciled us to who we are defined by God. And now all of a sudden, nothing that we do really matters anymore because all that we do is focus on what Jesus has called us to do. Then when we're in that place of doing what Jesus wants us to do, then all of a sudden, all our successes and all our failures give glory to who He is. And when that happens, we live in this place of what we call gospel-centered life. That everything that we do, we could give glory and we could give praise and honor to who Jesus is, what He has done on the cross, and we could give glory and honor to what, who, who God is and for the world to see that none of this defines me. 
that only God defines me. And that is the place of David. That is the heart of David. And that is what centers David despite everything that he's done. All of his successes, all of his failures, he can still come to that place of saying, God, you are my rock. So that is your, that is your story too. Church, this is your story. This is the gospel message that, that permeates in every single Christian's life. So how do you continue to live out that gospel? Are you able to come to that same place as David? Let's pray. Father God, we just are amazed by what you've done. We're amazed by the gospel. We're amazed by who you are and just your kindness that is bringing us to our knees. So, Father God, as we come before you, Lord, may your grace be poured into our lives. Lord, may we see ourselves and our lives the way that you see it. Lord, may we surrender every aspect of it to you. So, Father God, we just come and we ask for your grace to be upon us today. We ask for your mercy to be upon us today. Lord, may we see life through your lens. May we see life through the gospel, just like King David did. So, Lord, we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Fives of Church, we'll see you guys online next week.